0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: How do we give less fucks and how do we move beyond our programming is that we start to question it. And yeah. so like, for me, this was like culminating into like, a full on panic attack where I like, I, I was, cause my, like I tried to, so basically I like did everything I thought I was supposed to do. And that led me to like, I was like popping Adderall to get more done and to like be thin because I had this story after losing a dad that like men I love will leave me in order for men to love me. I need to be thin and I need to look this certain way and like have this certain resume. Um, and so I was like doing that. I was like, n- like, you know, struggling with eating disorders and like drinking to take the edge off. And I just had like a series and dating a very emotionally unavailable men. So I had this series of like very self-destructive behaviors because I didn't know how to navigate my uncomfortable emotions. And it was like it, all that breakdown sort of opened up of like, Whoa, this isn't working. And like, what have I been believing and buying into? And so it, it began this process of really of self inquiry and examining the stories I was telling myself about myself. Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it is really cool to have you back here because uh, I think you are actually the very second interview we did under the new name, uh, Unmistakable <laughs> Creative. So to, to have you back here years later is really, really cool. You have a new book out, which we will talk about, and I'm really glad it's out because I've been wondering what the hell took so long for it to come out. Uh, <laughs> but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and your career?
1: Oh, interesting. I love this question. You know, I think what was interesting about my high school experience is that I didn't have a social group. I butterflied around. I like, I wasn't like the quote-unquote cool kids weren't really for me, but I had friends there, but then I loved like the tech nerds and then I loved the jocks and then I loved the artistic crew. I'm totally labeling right now, but I feel like I sort of was a butterfly and or less a butterfly, more hummingbird. And I went wherever I felt like there was nectar and resonance and connection. And, you know, I've never, as I'm saying this out loud, I have never connected this dot before in my life, which is like, that's actually a lot of my creative process, which is where I like go where there's resonance and go where there's a sense of connection and then connect all of those dots to, you know, see, see what that can become. And I really feel like my, my high school experience reflected that.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: What uh, is something that you took away from each group in particular that has had an impact?
1: With the cool kids, it was definitely about wanting their validation and approval. And so I feel like the learning there was to to be me rather than to try and fit into uh, be accepted by them, which took me, you know, years to understand. But I remember like, when it, you know, the book is about choosing wonder over worry. And I feel like I, I came into the world with a lot of, of wonder. And then that sort of shifted into worry, which I feel like was influenced by wanting the validation and approval of certain peers. And so I would say that was definitely, um, with a lot of the like, quote unquote, cool kids with like the artistic and the, the artistic was the opposite. Cause this is where I feel like I could go and just like explore my inner world through art and, you know, make things that energize me. And this is where I just felt like everyone was so curious and in flow and expressive and emotional. And what I learned from them is that you can put your feelings into what you create. And then, you know, with the jocks, the jocks were mostly my boyfriends (laughs) (laughs) and you know, what I learned there was that was just like who I thought I was supposed to date. Like, you know, this like boy next door, athletic, um, kind of guy. And really it was actually like one guy in particular since we dated for like three years in, in high school. Um, but I was like, I remember I was like the lacrosse manager Then I was like, I would go to every baseball game. And so I was a super involved girlfriend. Um, and that just like, I'd say if anything taught me loyalty and commitment because, you know, athletes are like. Like I, I was a, I was a dancer and a pianist and, um, you know, I, but I wasn't involved in any athletics in the school uh-huh. and like that requires like a level of commitment. I remember like I, my boyfriend had to be at school at like five thirty every morning. Cause he was like, you know, one of the top baseball players and it was just like, you know, awe inspiring in how they showed up. Um, so those are, I'd say some of the, some of the learnings from the, the high school crew. Thanks for taking me back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've been known to do that to people. Um, this need for validation uh, mm. is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. It's something I wrote about extensively in the, in the piece on, you know, what we should have learned in school but never did. Uh, was there a point at which you stopped seeking it and stopped needing it? Um, and, you know, I think that the most interesting paradox of validation, at least as I've experienced it, is that the more you become known, especially for the work that you do, the more you seem to get of it, uh, which is really bizarre.
1: Yeah. I mean, so in high school, I think there was this battle between me pretending like I didn't want it and acting all like cool and aloof and no big deal. And like, I got all my shit together and I don't need your like love and approval when really I desperately wanted it. (laughs) But I feel like, you know, I, that was a trend that carried with me. And I think it was very unconscious. Like I didn't, I don't think as a, as a teenager, I was like, Oh, I want them to like me. And I was like super conscious of that, that, desire or need. And even into my early twenties, you know, a lot of my desire for career accolades and working in the field of tech and having these male mentors and wanting their, their validation was to fill a void inside. And I feel like it wasn't until I'm trying to think of like when it really shifted. And, you know, I think it was the point when I decided you know, I, I sort of had, I like worked with Apple, worked with this like agency was again, like doing on paper, what I felt like would, um, be quote unquote successful such that the world would applaud and love me. Um, it wasn't until, um, I decided to leave the world of tech, which of course all of my, I remember one mentor specifically when I was telling him about like what I was curious about, he was like, I'm not going to let you go be a life coach. Mm -hmm. And like, a, I never said I wanted to be a life coach. B, <laughs> e, B, there's nothing wrong with life coaches. Not, but like, you know, and he was just like, like, there was like this like strong, like almost like I feel like these male mentors almost had this like fatherly, like, no, I'm going to not let you ruin your life. And when I just said, okay, but I'm going to do this anyway for me, I feel like that was the point when I was sort of like, that's who I thought I was supposed to be. That's who I, you know, thought would give me the applause of others, but that's what is having me feel so empty. And so I'm going to choose myself now and I'm going to choose wonder. And that I feel like is when it really shifted. And I started to give a lot less fucks.
0: Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> You know, this is a quote that struck me from the book. Of course, I have tons of stuff underlined and highlighted, but you said, you know, we're taught to follow rules, not create them to be sensible, Mm. not curious to know answers, not ask questions. We learn that wonder can lead to rejection and hurt. And so we hide and conceal who we are to belong, not realizing that we're abandoning ourselves in the process. Mm. Why is that? And how do other people stop giving so many fucks?
1: Yeah. Well, you read that one more time. I really want to take that in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're taught to follow rules, not create them to be sensible, not curious to know answers, not ask questions. We learn that wonder can lead to rejection and hurt. And so we hide and conceal who we are to belong, not realizing that we're abandoning ourselves in the process.
1: Got it. Yeah. So where that originates from is because, I mean, our entire grading system in our education is devised around having us follow rules, you know, follow this like orderly line of, of here are the check marks to success And so I think as a result of that, that is where, you know, we, that's where we're validated. And so I think it takes, you know, there's so much programming and learning around here's how to be a human that fits in and belongs. Here's how to be a human. Um, If you get the straight A's and go to the right college and get the good job and then marry and then get the house and have the kids and here's the step-by-step of how to lead a happy life, um, you know, we're not really shown Um, and I think this is changing now, but particularly with the internet, um, we're not really shown other directions. Like, I don't know about you, but Facebook came out my senior year of college. And I remember when I was living in San Francisco, um, in that tech job working in, like, it was this startup, but I was working in a desk wondering in my mind, like what else is there to life, but also not seeing any examples of what was different. But like, this is when blogs were like, people were just starting to talk about lifestyle design and. There's a guy named Colin Wright that I came across Mm -hmm. first and he was moving to a new country every three months as, as decided by his blogging community. And I was like, what? Like you can do that. And so I think, you know, part of it is that like we're socialized into this system. And then the second part is that we don't have like examples of what, how other ways that we can live and explore and create. And again, like that's changed drastically in the last 10 years. Uh Um, but so like, how do we, give less fucks and how do we move beyond our programming is that we start to question it. And so like, for me, this was like culminating to like a full on panic attack where I like I I was because my like, I tried to, so basically I like did everything I thought I was supposed to do. And that led me to like, I was like popping Adderall to get more done and to like be thin because I had this story after losing a dad that like men I love will leave me in order for men to love me. I need to be thin and I need to look this certain way and like have this certain resume. Um, and so I was like doing that. I was like, like, you know, struggling with eating disorders and like drinking to take the edge off. And I just had like a series and dating a very emotionally unavailable men. So I had this series of like very self-destructive behaviors because I didn't know how to navigate my uncomfortable emotions. And it was like it, all, that breakdown sort of opened up of like, whoa, this isn't working. And like, what have I been believing and buying into? And so it began this process of really a self-inquiry and examining the stories I was telling myself about myself. And so looking at like, okay, why, you know, why am I even in tech or like, like this story about men or like these guys I'm dating. Like why, like, why am I dating them? Like they, all of them are telling me they don't want to be in committed relationships. Why am I like still trying to be in committed relationships with them? And so I think the process of like giving less fucks comes from like questioning your bullshit and wondering where you even learned that from and you know what story is 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 enabling you to buy into this this myth that you're telling yourself
0: Mm -hmm. um you know, it's interesting. I think the, the parts that caught my attention most when I was reading about your story was a lot of the self-destructive behavior that you had mentioned because it seems mm. to be such a contrast to who I know you to be today. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, Again, I don't know you that well, but from what I knew of you, you know, from the interactions that we had and from what I've read, it was just kind of almost like, wow, I did not know that. Uh, mm. <clears throat> I'm curious what it felt like to, to get that out and also, you know, knowing that the world would read about all of this.
1: It was like the most cathartic thing that I've ever done in my life (laughs) (laughs) and the most terrifying because I, you know, and I, the reason this is a very, like, this is like both intentional and also it sort of emerged at the same time where I felt like I was sick of hear stories of here's why I'm so great. And here's like how, like, I didn't want it to be like, here's how to sprinkle wonder and magic and synchronicity into your life. Like I wanted to talk about the real shit Mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, when we don't, that it's just like, that's, that's not real life. And so I decided to really go there first for myself, to be honest. And this is like, can I talk about your upcoming book a little bit? Yeah okay, this is what struck me so much. I'm obsessed with your upcoming, the message of your upcoming book. I was like, yes, shaking it when I received it, because in it, it's basically, you know, do the work for you. And actually through doing what serves you, that actually may be the most selfless act of all. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the process of committing to and writing and really going there in my own story and entering my own ache and exploring my own darkness and really dancing with my shadow enabled me to like, opened my life in extraordinary ways. I full body goosebumps as I say this and like literally transformed me, the writing, the process of writing this book transformed me. And I hope, you know, that translates in some way to the person who reads it and they're able to see themselves in the stories. And, you know, I, I just had to trust that, Cause there was also like a big, I had a mentor once tell me that no one cares about my story. Mm. And so in the back of my mind, the entire time I was writing, it was like, you're telling too much about your story. No one cares about your self-destructive behaviors. Don't go there. But I had to like, that's when I had to pause and be like, what are the stories that I like to read? Oh, it's stories like this. Keep going. Mm. You know, thank you. Thank you. Inner critic. I see you, you know, trying to protect me. We're going to, we're going to play here anyway. And so, yeah, it was the most, um, eye-opening journey and really the process of writing the book. So I remember Ryan, Ryan holiday saying or reading this article and Farhad was like, my fiance was like sending me different articles of like how to right. write a, how to write a book. And Ryan holiday is like, do not write a word unless you have the structure. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, fuck that's not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. But, um, I, I write differently. Cause the, I mean, when I think about the structure, I'm in like left brain, like, uh-huh. Like that's not where my creativity comes from, I feel like. And so I really, the way I approach the writing process is like, and even the proposal, the proposal to the actual book are very different things. Yeah. And I feel like the proposal helped me peel off a layer of an onion so that I could like go deeper and deeper and deeper. And, you know, when I, when I sat down to write, I was just like, this proposal does not feel right. And so let me focus on the stories that I'm aching to tell. And that's really like where I went. And I had been to a workshop with Cheryl Strait and she said, do you tell your journal the truth? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Ooh. And I really started to go to that place of like where I was denying my own truth or where I was judging myself or where um what aspects you know were still like slightly unresolved and to enter into them through writing and see what emerged through that process and really through that that ended up bringing a lot of my own anxieties, my fears, my doubts, um, my sense of hiding. Like it brought it all to the surface. It brought like all the flavors and friends of worry to the surface. And the book ended up getting structured around these different characters that I met along the way in the writing process,
5: Mm, Wow.
1: which I couldn't have imagined or predicted or like thought up mentally. Like it literally happened through creating.
0: Well, it's funny because I, I think the thing that took me the longest time to actually get a book done was uh, something you know, that Jennifer Loudon told me. She said, your you know, structure has to be linear, but your process doesn't. And that mm-hmm. liberated me you know, to finally do things. Of course, the first comment I got back from my editor at Penguin was, we're not concerned about your ability to finish a book. We're concerned about your ability to structure it in a linear fashion. So we want you to work with a writing coach. And I said, that's a valid concern, and I'll happily work with the writing coach.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that.
0: Um, so you know, it's interesting. You brought up my book and the message of, of doing something for yourself, being very selfless. And I met somebody at a conference once who you know challenged me about the message of this book and said, "You're making this argument from a place of privilege, uh, mm. you know, because you have a publisher who is backing this whole thing." Now that's not the question I have. Uh, this is a question I've asked a handful of people, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this. So. Uh, you may have seen it, uh, it kind of made its way around the internet. David Letterman has this new show where he's interviewing very fascinating people and I'm watching it to learn how he interviews people. And mm. the first guest he had was Barack Obama. And mm-hmm. towards the end of the interview, Barack Obama asks him, you know, uh, you've, he, I've, he says, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people, uh, in my life who've been successful with careers in the arts and in business, uh, you know, in politics. And he looks at David Letterman and says, do you ever feel that there's an element to serendipity of this? Do you feel that in some way you're lucky? And David Letterman said, I feel nothing but lucky. And Mm. I'm wondering, do you feel that there has been an element of serendipity and luck involved in you getting to this place?
1: I mean, absolutely. I feel like, I mean, it's, I can't remember who said this, but it's like where hard work meets What is that quote? It's like the inner. Yeah. We're like, it's like the intersection of like, you like prepare like a motherfucker and then that creates lucky breaks. And then lucky breaks, like you run toward, if that makes sense. So it's Uh like this, I feel like there's so many, so much of my journey was like and this is another element I'd say of like choosing wonder over worry like I think of when I all of a sudden started making art and then I had an idea for this interactive public art project and then I'm walking around my neighborhood in Brooklyn and I notice oh a flyer there's an art festival happening here in 3 weeks and like, that's interesting. And so I like went on the website, realized that applications had closed three months prior, but figured what the hell, let me email the organizer and like come up with a compelling pitch of like why they should add me to this festival festival last minute. And I almost didn't send the email because I thought it would be offensive like, who's this person who thinks that like, she can suddenly step in after there was a whole application process and selection process. But I decided like, fuck it, let's see what happens. And, um, she ended up replying back to me, which I laughed about. She said, it sounds like you really know what you're doing. Considering I've, i had never done a public art project in my life before. It sounds like you really know what you're doing. And I found you a wall. And I was like, what? And so, I mean, I don't know if that like the, I mean the serendipity of the fact that the idea struck me at the exact time frame of the year that an art festival was happening ended up being their last festival in Brooklyn. The fact that I like saw the flyer at the time, knew a woman in Dumbo, got an email, sent the email. She said, yes, like, is that luck? Is that, you know, just like enthusiasm and, uh, you know, effort. I don't know, but it's, there's been many times in my life where the synchronicities and the serendipities and the way that the things come together that I couldn't have planned for is beyond rational thought. And so, I mean, I guess you could call that luck. Hmm.
0: What do you say to people who feel that they have not had any sense of a lucky break, uh, particularly in a career in the arts, which is not an easy thing to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say this might like create your lucky break in a way. Like what would, like, what does it even mean to have a lucky break for you? And how can you like, like I, so here's an example. Well, I was going to give an example that I don't think is a good example. So I'm not going to give that example. Okay. I'm going to give it anyway. My inner critic piped up cause it's a privilege. Good example. Uh-huh. But like I, um, want Apollo Coelho to write the forward of my book. And so I decided to fly across the country. Like I decided in 24 hours, flew to Switzerland, did a video about it, put it online and ended up getting his attention. Um, And so, like, I ended up being like, what is the story that I wanted to tell? Or what is the outcome that I want? What's the story that I can tell? What's the enthusiasm that I can create around this? And, like, how can I make that happen? Yes, that was, like, an expensive move. Um, He didn't write the forward of the book because he can't under contract. But he did say he would promote it. Mm -hmm. And so, I think, like... Yeah. I get curious what it would look like for someone to create their own luck. And I don't have the answer for how they do that, but I can give them the question, which is sit down and ask yourself, how can I create my own luck?
0: Hmm. Earlier in our conversation, uh, you mentioned that you were both a dancer and a pianist in high school. uh, And you also brought up commitment. What impact uh, did being a dancer and a pianist have on your creative practice later in your
5: life?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, especially with piano, like a level of discipline and devotion that goes into both of those, whether it was like a ruler going up to my back to the, how, you know, straight I was sitting. So like my posture is like still to this day, Pretty perfect as a result of like the training and the notes and the like preparation and the dance and the piano recitals and all of those things. It was interesting that I I picked two fields that tend to focus on perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I think in one regard it like it really had me show up and commit, um, in another it also brought out these like need to be perfect which were, were aspects of myself that I feel like I had to, um, you know, re-examine later. Um, but you know, what's interesting about both dance and piano is that I, I feel like I played piano because my mom wanted me to, because she never played piano. And so while I was committed and showed up, I never really felt like I was doing it for me. And as a result of that, my commitment was was half-hearted rather than wholehearted. And you know, I had, it wasn't so like mid high school, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore because I'm not doing this for myself. Whereas, like, I, so I started an online magazine when I was 11 called Teen Zine, and I used to like go into AOL chat rooms, recruit women, and send out this, email letter through email and i would spend like 9 hours on it on a sunday capturing all these articles i had like different writers and then i would hit send and because this was like AOL back in the day i would have to like it would tell me all the people who no longer had emails and i had to go manually search for those emails and this list ended up being like 5000 young women so like it like was so much time and attention but it was because i loved it so much And so I feel like that's actually more of a reflection of my devotion. And it's so funny how that sort of work is actually similar to what I'm doing today.
5: Mm
1: -hmm. So I always find it interesting to like, you know, where as kids were we naturally drawn and curious because that's where we were naturally drawn and curious. And then where were we encouraged or prompted by people in our lives who wanted us to be curious about that. And when did we do that? Because we thought, Oh, if I do this, mom will, you know, love me. Or mom will be happy if I do this. Um, and so I always, I always think that's interesting to reflect on. Mm.
0: Um, <clears throat> you brought up education when we were talking uh, at the beginning when I read the quote from your book. And this is of particular interest to me, largely because it's likely going to be what I write my next book about. But what do you mm. think you should have learned in school but never did?
1: how to feel our feelings. Like, I think the missing curriculum in school is emotional literacy, and I'm so passionate about it because, I mean, it was a struggle, a deep struggle for me, which is like, how do we understand what we're feeling? How do we connect with our feelings? And how do we navigate, move with, and have a relationship with our feelings? And, you know, I feel like because in our education it's so much about achievement, grades, success, um, that there's no room for navigating the, the emotions that emerge in the process of that. And that's why we can see like, you know, high school suicides on the rise and, and bullying. And there's bullying I feel like is a symptom of unexpressed emotion that you that a child doesn't know how to target or direct. And so like, how does someone work through their anger? How do we navigate our comparison and our envy when our peers are more successful in different subjects? How do we embrace, you know, someone's curiosities and the multitude of subjects that are available and show that like, you know, math and science is great as is, as are the arts or as are the athletics, whatever it is for that unique person. Um, I feel like, yeah, emotions and, and the feeling based stuff is the core critical, Piece that's missing that I feel like why so many, like the quarter life crisis, I feel like is so much of our midlife crisis is all of these unresolved, unexpressed emotions that, you know, blow up.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, You open the book with a story of your dad uh, Mm. and losing your dad in early age. And I'm wondering, one, what's been the impact uh, on your life and the choices that you've made uh, with both your life and your career uh, of not having him be part of your life? And what's been the impact of that on your relationship with your mother?
2: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
4: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Mm. So a little bit of background and context. So my dad was this like brilliant businessman, artist, creative. He was like, my mom said he was the smartest man she's ever met. And, but he also had like very charismatic and addictive um personality traits so it was like you know cocaine he was like very into rock and roll wanted to be a famous singer songwriter and so what you know in the whatever the 70s very much into the like drugs rock and roll sex all of that who knows how many mistresses he had you know my mom got pregnant out of wedlock and when we when i was about 3 he decided to leave to go pursue his dream in his band called dreamer and um, there was like, I remember one of my very first memories and first memories, my only, my first youngest memory of him is this phone call where I talked to him on the phone and he, he told me that, you know, no matter what, he would always love me. And it was a few weeks after that, that he got behind the wheel under the influence and not only killed his best friend, but that ultimately led to his death. And he didn't die until, um, many years later, he was in a coma and then he was in a care center, but never regained full consciousness Was basically brain dead. Um, which is like more like, like I always like wished he would have just died, um, rather than like being a vegetable in a care center for nine more years. Um, and so I think, you know, the impact as a kid, I knew he was like dead, but still alive. And so there was this always like, fascination between when I was like three and nine around like, where is he? What's going on? Like he, like, I know he like got in a bad accident. I know my mom doesn't really want to talk about it. And so it was like, he was there, but not there. And so I feel like that created a, like, you know, an absence and a longing for something that I like had, but couldn't have. And, um, and it was, you know, I think it was like when I was around seven, eight or nine, when I said to my mom, you know, I I like, I was going, actually I was going on field trips to hospitals and I apparently like went up to one of the women and was like, Hey, is my dad here? And that's when my teacher was like, went and had a conversation with my mom. And mom was like, Oh boy. Okay. Time to like really have a serious conversation about this. And so I ended up going to visit him and see him in this care center. Um, And, you know, it was just like this harrowing scene of him, like with a swollen face connected to all these machines, you know, just like not himself. And, you know, I, I, in that moment, I was more devastated that that was the state he was in. And I really just wanted him to, to pass on. And, you know, it wasn't too long after when I saw him in person that he did die. And the first thought, like the first sensation that I felt was like, like finally, like he can, like, I felt this like overwhelming sense of gratitude that he could let go and move on. Um, but I also was upset that he, you know, had so much to give and so many gifts and yet never faced himself and let, and let his addictions really lead him. And so, you know, I remember being a mid teenager and committing that I would never follow in those footsteps. And I would not like, like the, the phrase that came to mind was like, I won't die with my gifts still inside. Um, and what's ironic is that I actually feel like I s- followed in similar footsteps in very different ways. Cause I was like perfectionist performer straight A's, but that led to like Adderall abuse and eating disorders and all of those things. Um, and then it was when I had that breakdown in my mid twenties being like, fuck, I'm actually like not facing myself. Like I'm actually following in similar footsteps. And that was like the wake up call for me to be like, Whoa, I'm not. I'm not going to let my life pass by and I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to, turn toward this angst and, and really see how I can transform it into something. And so I feel like, you know, in, in some way, like his death was both tragic and the greatest gift. Um, because for a long time, and someone actually realized or had me realize this when they were reading an early version of my manuscript, they're like, your dad actually didn't die with his gift still inside because you lived on and you were his gift. And I was like, Whoa. Um, but you know, I think, so there was like part of that revelation, but you know, another realization I had is that, you know, there was, I feel like there was this father size hole in my heart that I was always trying to fill with validation and approval and wanting men to approve of me and love me to fill that void of never having that like strong, consistent, stable father figure. And I even at it for a period of time had a stepdad, um, my mom remarried, but then their relationship ended and I'm no longer in contact with him. So there was like this like flow of, of, of father figures and, um, I, you know, the ultimate realization for me, cause my biggest worry of all was that I would be abandoned. And, you know, it took me a lot of, a lot of like inner work to realize like, wait, I will never leave me. I will never abandon me. I love me. And when I could, you know, turn toward myself and instead of projecting it externally on like some man figure, I could say like, you know, I'm looking for them. What, what I was unable to give to myself. And so when I was able to see even my dad as a reflection of my own inner longing, a need that I could meet, that's actually, that I feel like was when I really like could stepped into my power and realized like, wait, I am the creator of everything that I need. Um, and that sort of connection to self and that sort of self responsibility, I feel like, you know, stopped having me project my desires on other people and started having me really own up and step into providing for myself. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I think about then to go to the mother piece, I feel like, you know, um, we each have an inner father and an inner mother inside of us. And it's so important for us to cultivate our relationship with those characters, no matter how, what our relationship was like with our parents, because, you know, like my mom was a brilliant businesswoman and entrepreneur, and she taught me so much about that realm. Um, but like vulnerability, showing up and being vulnerable and expressing our emotions was not like, she didn't know how to do that. And so, you know, where my inner mother has had to step in is like, to like, if I'm, you know, in the middle of an anxiety, like, attack or breakdown, what I'll do is I'll imagine myself holding my, like, like my child self and saying, it's okay. You're safe here. It's okay. You're safe here. And I have a lot of like visualizations that support me. Um, when I, when, you know, worry and anxiety or fear get really loud. And that's me, that's me really nourishing and cultivating my inner mother. Whereas like my inner father is about like, you know, Um, stability and providing for myself and those other pieces. And it's so interesting when we can, you know, turn these parts of ourselves into archetypes, you know, we can be in relationship with them so that we can continually meet our own needs rather than projecting those outside of us.
0: Hmm. Wow. Um, well, let's do this. Walk me through how you get from leaving tech to writing this book. What were the significant inflection points and influences that got you to this point?
1: So the big one was, and so even, I think what started is I, while I, when I took this leap from, I actually, so I grew up in Chicago, um, worked at a digital ad, digital agency and then moved to San Francisco for tech. And that's when I started a Tumblr blog and this, the purpose of this Tumblr blog was just for me to like both like curate inspiration, write about my feelings. It was more about just like a place for me to begin to carve out, um, who I wanted to be and like, I was starting to ask those big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I here to do? And this Tumblr blog to me was this safe space for me to just like express. And I truly thought no one would ever go to this page and read the things that I had to say. And so this is important in two ways. One, that I had a safe space to express and, you know, curate inspiration and curiosity, which I think is important for anyone when they're asking those big questions. Um, and because I did it in a public forum before, like, I mean, this was like early days of Tumblr, what happened is that people ended up finding it and reading it. And so that was key for me because, um, suddenly I had, you know, I went from like curating this page, like nine months in, I had thousands of people saying like me too. And I feel this way and realizing that there was resonance in the journey that I was in, which I thought I was all alone. I thought no one was feeling the way that I was feeling, particularly like in Chicago. I felt like people were happy in their jobs and happy, like going out drinking and getting blacked out on Saturday nights. And I was just like, this is not for me. <laughs> and, um, and so that, that sort of starting that online poem for me was huge. And so when I took this leap from San Francisco to New York, which is the other big inflection point, because I did it in a 48 hour period after thinking about it for nine months, um, I basically decided to quit my job, sell my belongings and move across the country in a 48 hour period. And then I wrote about it. And I did not have savings and I did not have a plan really. And like all I had was this like following I had built, um, around my blog and a friend who like inspired me to go and said he can make connections and introductions for me. And so I took this leap and when I wrote about it, the piece ended up going viral and opened up all these doors in New York. And so I remember landing in New York city, turning on my phone and being like, why do I have so many text messages? And then why do I have so many emails? Um, And basically, you know, people wanted to hire me, create a TV show. Like there were all these opportunities that I landed into New York. And of course I didn't want a job at the time because my whole purpose of moving from SF to New York was to be like, you know, who am I and why am I here? I was going on this quest of of truth seeking, this quest of self-discovery. And, um, but it ended up you know, I, the guy, Amit Gupta, who was a huge inspiration for me to make the leap. He had a company called photo Jojo. And so I called him up and said, Hey, why don't I be your East coast sidekick and help you like land collaborations or ad deals or like whatever to like so I could earn income and also meet interesting people. And he ended up connecting me to like the founders of Squarespace and, um, Vimeo and busted Tees and, and Tumblr and ended up like figuring out collapse. And so like, I remember I walked into one meeting and because they already had an established relationship, I closed like a very large ad deal with Squarespace in five minutes. And I was like, okay, that's enough cash for the next three months. And so it was like this, this period of, of hustling and putting myself out there and throwing as many ideas as I could against a wall, which I feel like is another really important inflection point, which was like, okay, let me like, this is interesting. Let's see what sticks. And I, from, from moving to New York to then when I got hired to work with Seth Godin, which is about a nine month period, I probably Tested, tried, played with 15 to 20 ideas, um, worked with different startups in a different consulting capacity. I was like in full on wonder discovery mode. And one of those ideas was called New York Night Owls. And a friend of mine had started New York City's first co working space. And I basically pitched him I was like, hey, what about all the people who work at, late at night but are working alone? What if we created New York Night Owls and brought people together late at night? And so this guy, Alan and I with Tony, our friend started it. And in three months there were 20 locations around the world. It was on the front page of the New York times and ABC world news did a story on it. And I was like, Holy shit. (laughs) Um, And so that was like, I made this big leap to New York, you know, I was like barely figuring out the money piece, but it was sort of working out, but some of these ideas were taking off and working. And I was like, this is interesting. Okay. Um, and that it was those sorts of experiments that I think, you know, when Seth Godin put out his call for people to work with him to start this new publishing experiment called the domino project, I think that was like what, you know, supported me in and being chosen to work with him. And so that is the other huge inflection point, which was, you know, working with Seth for six months to start the Domino project and put 12 books out there and working with Derek Sivers alongside him as his, like, I was like the CEO of his book, um, working with Stephen Pressfield on his book, do the work. It was, you know, it was amazing and fucking like brought all the insecurities to the surface. And I just wanted Seth to like me mm-hmm. <laughs> and approve of me another male figure that I wanted to like and approve of me. Um, and so, you know, I think what was more interesting about the domino project for me was that all of the insecurities it brought to the surface, even more than like the quote unquote success we created, like, you know, we created, I think it was like every book was a bestseller, but, um, I had major imposter syndrome. I thought Seth didn't like me and, you know, I never thought anything I did was good enough. And so, (laughs) And so those that's when worry started to get like, when I really, because I, at this point had been doing enough of the self-awareness work that I was familiar with, like, whoa, there's a crazy person inside my head constantly screaming mean things at me. And, um, and then I'm like projecting them on my team and Seth. And this is really interesting. And I like see what's happening, but like, what the fuck do I do about this? And so that was like, I think a huge, like it shook everything up so that I, it could all come to the surface for me to look at. Hmm. And um oh man there's there's so many more I'm like wait this is like only 8 years ago How do, am I going too long tell me if I'm going no, too long No no keep on Okay so then Um, while I was working with Seth, the other interesting thing that started happening is because, so I had like made this leap to New York. I was writing and blogging about the journey, worked with Seth. So about a year into moving into New York, almost exactly people started emailing me and saying, Hey, I've seen that you've made this leap and you've made these strides in your, you know, your career. Can you help me figure out what to do with my life and my career? And I was like, Oh, that's really interesting because at this point I'm 25 years old and I'm like, why the hell would anyone want? Like, cause they're like, can I hire you? I was like, why would anyone want to hire a 25 year old, you know, support them and getting clarity on their life? That's interesting. Um, but sure, let's try it out. And so I started something called the passion experiment and it was this four week program where every week for, four weeks we would, we would meet and, you know, I'd have them fill out like what it is that they wanted and what their goals and their dreams were. And then over the course of four weeks, we would like create experiments for them to go as quickly as possible, act on these ideas, iterate and and evolve what it is that they thought that they wanted. And people made massive strides in a short period of time, way more than I expected, like got a raise that made them way more than the cost of working together like within a fo- the first phone call or like writing the story they always want to tell and getting it published or starting their own consulting business and getting a client in 4 weeks it was like creating results for other people that similar to what I had done for myself and so when my time culminated with Seth I really felt like there was something to this and I was making significant money doing it at like 3 months in I think I like I don't know I was I was charging like 2 grand a person so you know it was like probably a total of six to eight hours of my time for $2,000. And I was working with like four people at a time. And so I was like, this is, this is interesting. There's something to this. But then that's when I like doubted myself the possibility and if it could happen and completely self sabotaged by, um, working with a different founder who had a lot of funding to help him start a new division of his business. And then this was like, I feel like the major breakdown moment because for three months I put everything that I had worked for. And I feel like, you know, everything, all the awareness I'd been doing, I sort of like pushed it to the side, jumped into this thing that my heart wasn't in because it looked good on paper and, you know, became a shell of myself. Then in three months, I like gained 30 pounds. I had rashes breaking out all over my body. My body was like, fuck, no, like listen to me. And I'm going to get as loud as possible until you hear me. Um, and that ended up culminating to a, a really intense panic attack that had me be like, okay, whoa, this isn't working. I need to quit immediately, apologize and, um, and, and redirect. But what was interesting about that is the, oh, and by the way, I was sleeping with my boss. So like, that was not, <laughs> that was not good. I, I was like, I was sabotaging everywhere. <laughs> um, and, but what was interesting about this is that I ended up the founder, the boss, um, Like, doing the work I was doing with the individuals, I started to do with him, like, why are you even starting this new division of your company? What is it that you really want? And a few months after I said, I quit, I'm not doing this anymore, he ended up selling this company for a shit ton of money. And so... I felt like, okay, there, there is something to this whole being an accelerator for other people. And then that began the, the like three years of my life where I worked one-on-one with people, started the bold Academy. You know, we did a 30 day accelerator, a 10 day accelerator. Then I created a six month mastermind and was having retreats around the world and doing all these workshops. And, you know, it was, basically supporting people to make the changes that I had made. And then I had a really interesting realization of like, wait, how did I, how did I go from like catalyzing myself to catalyzing everyone else and working with people to write their books and working with people to launch their ideas and working with them to like do all the things that they dream of doing when like, this is part of my dream, but not really my dream. And I realized that I was being what Julia Cameron calls a shadow artist, where I was in the shadow and hiding, supporting in the like propel the propelling of everyone else when I had pushed my own ideas and dreams and visions to the side. Cause I think, you know, I, I had stepped really into the role of a coach when I think where I thrived the most was really as a creative. Um, and of course those two things can come together, but that's when I decided to fully pause and like pers- go f- all in on art. So it was like this like pendulum swinging where it was like, jump, move across the country, explore everything. Okay. Work with Seth. Okay. Pendulum to the other side. Start jump into someone's company. Okay. Because it was like, I was doing all of these like swinging, um, into different, totally different directions. Um, which I remember friends at the time being like, this is a little all over the place. And I was like, trust me, there's a process in here somewhere. I'll get to it eventually. Um, and then in art that, that was when I, you know, started taking, like, I went into this art gallery. I remember one day and I looked at the walls and there was all this mixed media art. And I had this thought, it's time to make some art. And of course that was like my voice of wonder. And My voice of worry was like art, who the hell are you to make art? You didn't go to art school. And so it was like again, in that moment, choosing wonder, talking to the guy who owned that gallery, seeing if he wanted to lead a workshop, which he did. And I ended up bringing different people to start learning from him about art. And that's what led me to one day realizing I wanted to do this interactive public art project after I started asking strangers these questions like, what are you afraid of? Um, you know, what are you grateful for? What's the world you want to live in and how will you create that world? And after talking, I think to 200 strangers, I thought, how cool would it be to like create a public space for people to answer these questions? and that's when I walked in my neighborhood, saw there was an art festival happening, pitched the idea and then launched it three weeks later. And, um, once I launched that, then people around the world started reaching out saying, Hey, can I bring this to, or will you bring this to my city? And I said, no, but I'll show you how to bring it to your own. Cause I thought it was way more interesting for them to be sort of the curator, or catalyst for their own community. Like I like, cause like one went live in you know, Tel Aviv and perch Australia and like, Appleton, Wisconsin. And I was like, I don't know your community like you do. Um, so here's the, here's the playbook. Um, and so that's, you know, that was sort of the journey of art. And as I was doing all of these things and, you know, writing about the process, it was so clear to me that the thing that I really wanted to be doing, but the thing that I was so afraid of was, was writing this book. And, um, you know, this, this sort of realization came when I went to this workshop with Elizabeth Gilbert, And she talked, she, someone asked her in this, in the audience, you know, Liz, how do you like make time for everything or something like that? And Liz said, well, you know, when I was in, when I was wanting to be a writer, I I remember telling this woman that I don't really have time to write. And the woman said to her, well, you're going to have to say no to live the, say no to some things to live the life that you say that you really want. You want to be a writer. You got to say no to some stuff. And, and Liz was like, of course I should say no to like this thing. I don't want to be doing this thing. I think I should be doing yada, yada, yada. And the woman said, the wise older woman said, no, you have to say no to things you do want to claim the life that you really want. And that struck me because I realized that I was like saying yes to these art installs and yes to maybe starting a podcast and yes to creating a notebook and yes to doing talks and yes to like sometimes coaching people. And when That was just a, those were all avoidance techniques because it was too scary for me to go all in on the thing that I really wanted because I thought that I might fail. It might not be good enough. You know, the list of worries go on. And when I sat down and got really honest with myself, I realized all of those things were nice, but the only thing that actually mattered was my book being in bookstores. And so that was like a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And so I was like going all in, I'm going to give myself six months and see what happens. And here we are.
0: Wow. Um, a lot of questions come from this.
1: Uh, <laughs> that was epically long.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is totally fine. Uh so first question is about money and wealth. Mm. How do you think about it now, uh, standing where you're at? And has it differed uh, and changed over time?
1: Money and wealth. Yeah. Well, I was never someone who is motivated by money. Um I saw like I didn't have a lot of money growing up and then my mom became was like screw this I'm gonna become a very successful entrepreneur and she like went down that path and then I saw money sort of destroy her relation, like one of her relationships and with my ex stepdad. And so I was, I went through more the phase of money doesn't matter, which was not healthy. Um, and so for a period of time, I was like, fuck money, money doesn't matter. Money's greed. I'm just going to like, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, that got to a point where I was like, okay, I also need to live and survive and do the things that I want to do. And so I feel like I shifted more into, um, money is a form of value exchange. And money is a form of like, I put out energy, I receive energy and we figure out what that exchange looks like. Um, and that, you know, I think this is more the like story of money that I'm speaking to, but, but wealth for me and like where richness comes from, I'm more interested in having an enriched life. And so if it, if it comes down to, for me that I need to sacrifice myself for money, um, that's not something I'm willing to compromise for. Cause I'd rather live a more enriched life. If I can, of course, like earn wealth, because as I discovered with the book and, you know, I, I got a pretty significant book advance and that enabled me to put a lot more energy and to hire other people and to support other people and to like really be able to put the level of resources that I wanted towards something I like truly cared about and believed in that helped me realize like okay you know money is this beautiful vehicle for bringing ideas into the world and so how do we how do we align what we create with um the resources required which is always the magical question that i don't necessarily have the answer to (laughs) Hmm.
0: all right Uh two sort of last pieces of this that I want to tackle. Um, you're probably the third or fourth person that I've had here that worked with Seth on the Domino project Mm. and every single person has very interesting things to say about what it's like to work with (coughs) Seth. So, uh, what did you learn from him uh, about success? What did you learn from him that you've applied going forward? What surprised you? Um, what, you know, what do we not see from the outside world to this very mysterious person?
1: Yeah. Oh man. I would love to hear what other people said. Um, for me, Seth was so generous. Like he cooked for us every day. He would do these like Seth lessons where he would teach us some like idea or framework or or lesson. And he was, he was so generous with his, his time and he cared so much. And that, I think that surprised me because, you know, I didn't, the, the way that he really showed up for us is he was like there. So whatever we needed, he was there. Um, and you know, I think what I really took away was the notion of making more mistakes and failing faster. And that was really uncomfortable for me because I wanted everything to be perfect. Mm. And he was, you know, it was just like, put it out there at 80%, put it out there at 80%, put it out there at 80%. And like, to the point where it was like so uncomfortable and he was just, always was like, go, go, go Amber, go, go, go Amber. And you know, there was a speed to it that made me feel uneasy, which I don't think is sustainable, Mm -hmm. but for a six month period, it was like this deep immersion of like, just like doing it. And so that was super profound. Also, he would have us every single day come in and he had this idea book by his door and we would write down, like we would come and leave. Like, I think we had to write, like we would write three ideas down, um, before we left every day. And that just got me in the habit of like looking to solve problems and looking for ideas. And they didn't have to be good ideas. They could be, he encouraged us to write down as many bad ideas as we could so that once we like built the muscle of idea creation, that, you know, that's how an actual good idea would emerge. Hmm. And then I, you know, I feel like his work around lizard brain and resistance, a lot of that was, you know, even foundational to how I talk about our worry voice and toxic worry and all of that. And, you know, something that. I don't know if he said this then, but something that really impacted me is so many people say like, let's get rid of, of fear. And his stance was always like, well, no, let's actually look at the language we're using because we don't get rid of fear. And so, you know, just shifting our relationship and our relationship to the fear. I feel like he really seeded that idea in me. And so much of the work, my work has sprung from our relationship with the various emotions we have inside of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I did get my book deal, I sent him a note, of course, and he said, come up and let's celebrate. And he cooked me lunch and it was, you know, really lovely. And he reminded me something that I actually never expected him to remind me. Cause he's like, set, we sat down and he's like, okay, let's talk marketing. And as I you know, started to ask him questions, I was like, I want to sell a million books. And he laughed at me and he's like, you've already won Amber. Like you got the deal. You get to write your book. Like I had brought my fiance with him. He's like, you have like, you're, you're engaged. Like you, you've already won before you've even, you know, written the book. And that actually really grounded me in like not attaching so much to the end result, but to really savoring and enjoying the journey. Mm -hmm. And he kept like encouraging me, like, do it your way, like write the book that you want to write. And, you know, there were times like in the process when I would email him and be like, you know, I'm supposed to, they want this. And he was like, what do you want? And would just like always bring me back to, he's like, you know, just be more Amber, do more Amber, be more Amber, which I like did not expect. Um, and just like really anchoring me and like, well, what is the way that you want to do it? And having me continue to turn, tune inward and focus on what it is that I was trying to create, not what other people wanted me to create.
0: Hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, This has been really amazing. Uh, So I have uh, one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews. And given that I may have asked you this when we started uh, about four years back, I'm curious to see how it's changed. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Mm. I'm so curious what I said before. Okay, let me, let me, I'm going to tune into this. What makes someone unmistakable is a willingness to put themselves in the work and to whether to, to show who they are and what they create so that it, it bleeds with love and care and vulnerability and you can really see how much they care showing through. I feel like, you know, there's so much being created on the internet following this formula. And I say, fuck the formula. Like what is, what, what is true for you and what is it that you want to create and how can you put yourself in that? And how can you put yourself on the line?
0: Hmm. Amazing. Where can people uh, learn more about you, your work and uh, the book?
1: They can learn. The book is choosewonder.com, would love you to pre-order and me. I'm at dot My blog and all types of fun stuff is over there. And then I'm, I'm obsessed with Instagram. So I feel like the best way to engage and i share almost daily content is, um, I'm Hey, Amber Ray on Instagram.
0: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.